News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Kind of a spooky time of year out there. I absolutely love it. It's a time to watch scary movies. It's a time to listen to scary stories. And there are plenty of them out there. For instance, I had never heard of the Bell Witch Haunting. It's from the United States and it's a couple of hundred years old, but it's something like the the mother of all haunting stories because so much of haunted house folklore probably derives from this one story. Now, Colin Dickey is the author of Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places and a contributor for Atlas Obscura and joins us now to tell us all about it. Now, Colin, what is the Bell Witch Haunting? The Bell Witch Haunting is one of the weirder hauntings I think I've come across. It's um, a story out of Tennessee, uh, northern Tennessee. There is a, a house uh, that was once owned or, or property once owned by, by a guy named John Bell, as the story goes, who was uh, plagued in the early 19th century by this entity that became known as the Bell Witch, uh, who sort of took up residence in their house, was alternately kind of nice and funny and would do tricks, but also became increasingly malevolent uh, and things got very dark very quickly. Colin, this sounds like a movie. This, this doesn't sound real. How do, how do we know? Like, what, what happened here? Yeah, so um, it's, it's a really fascinating story. And, I, and, and as I, I, I delved into the story, I found some really interesting plot twists. So most of what we know of the story of the Bell Witch comes from a book that was published in 1890 by uh, a journalist. Um, who, so, and the events of the Bell Witch haunting take place in the early 1820s about. So this was long after the story, and it had been kind of um, kind of floated around as local history. But this this author and uh, this journalist in 1890 put together the 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 true authenticated history of the Bell Witch based on things that he had found. Um, and uh, and so right. So the so this this sort of malevolent force starts appearing in John Bell's home. Um, and um, takes up a liking to both his his wife and his daughter and is sort of protective of them, but is meanwhile sort of causing uh, John Bell sort of increasingly uh, uh, difficult problems, uh, will will harass him, will insult him. Uh, John Bell is a is a is an owner of of enslaved people and he will and the, the Bell Witch will uh, harass and, and hurl sort of racist invective towards the enslaved people living uh, under bondage in, on John Bell's property. And, and increasingly things become more and more dire as this figure starts to exert this uh, protective aura around Betsy Bell, his daughter, um, and, and turn increasingly vicious towards, towards John Bell, the patron. Okay, this almost sounds like, I, mean, I guess the modern day versions of this would be things like... Um... Um, you know, Amityville horror, things like that, stories like that. It sounds very similar. Oh, yeah. And in fact, this story, as it became popular, became the basis for, I think, a lot of contemporary uh, American hauntings. There, there is a story based on the, uh, um, on the Bell Witch haunting, um, I think an American haunting, I think that's the one of it. Uh, but also the Blair Witch Project took some of its inspiration from, from the Bell Witch. You see a lot of the kind of, tropes that become standard in horror films used over and over again um, get their start here. The, the, the Bell Witch is in many ways a kind of prototypical 
American haunting story. This, this family lived on the frontier out kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, and they're beset by forces. You have a, a father figure trying to keep his family together and protect them as they're sort of beset by things that they, they have no control over and things become increasingly more violent and scary. So what is a prototypical then haunting story, as you call it? What, is, what does that mean? I mean, for me, what, what was really fascinating about the story of the Bell Witch is, um, you know, Northern American, you know, settlers and colonizers, they, they, they have this whole idea of, of the West, this kind of area where the normal rules of civilization don't apply. And, and of course, throughout the 19th century, the West moved further and further. But, you know, in the 1820s, when the Bell Witch story supposedly takes place, um, Tennessee is very much on the, on the frontier. You know, it's still a place that is seen by white colonists and settlers as something fantastical, uh, dangerous, where the laws don't apply. And so, so you have these stories over and over again of these, these people trying to sort of exert civilization, right? They come in with their, they build churches, they build little towns, they have these families, the families are run by, you know, these patriarchal father figures who, whose job it is to exert kind of masculine order and, um, you know, bring religion and, and commerce to this, this uncivilized land. And yet you have these stories of these, these malevolent or kind of supernatural forces that are always pushing back that, that need to be kind of fought in this battle of good and evil. And I think that the Bell Witch story is really fascinating because it is one where um, the, the, the patriarch ends up losing. So, so ultimately, uh, John Bell gets very sick and the Bell Witch uh, says, you know, sort of speaking uh, to the, the people, says, I've, I finally poisoned John Bell and he won't get up and he, and he dies a couple days later. And it's, it's one of our few... Uh, stories of, of a haunting where where the ghost actually commits a murder, at least as far as we know. So, Colin, you write about these things. Have you ever experienced one of these things? Gone somewhere where you thought, yep, this place is haunted? I mean, I've spent some time in a lot of really unsettling places. So, for, for my book, Ghostland, uh, where I went around to a lot of different haunted places, one of the, the more unsettling places I went to was the Moundsville Penitentiary in Moundsville, West Virginia, the this giant fortress of a place that was it was really designed architecturally to to make you feel bad you know the the architecture mm-hmm. was part of the punishment and it it had a it had a very kind of just just bad feeling vibe all about it um the other place that was really fascinating is i went to a brothel in nevada outside of reno that was supposedly haunted um and one of the women who worked there showed me this uh, video that she had taken of herself where this this orb of light had sort of attacked her and knocked her over. And of course, it was only visible in the video. And in, in, in real life, she couldn't remember how exactly she had fallen that way. Okay, so you have seen some creepy stuff out there then. I mean, I've seen some stuff that I don't have ready explanations for, you know, who knows? There's, you know, a lot of possibilities out there. I try and be pretty open minded. But Sure. I think we've all seen something at one point in our life that we don't have a, a necessarily easy explanation for. And that's, I don't know, that's part of the reason we keep coming back to these. Yeah, that's it, right? Do you think that's what it is? Like, we love the mystery. We love the fact that there might just be some things out there that we can't explain. Yeah, I think that's true. I think people want to believe that there's something that that is invisible, that that is there's not an, an easy explanation for. And, and it sort of 
is reassuring to know there might be more out there, however you so define that. And you certainly don't run out of places to write about, do you? Like, do people t- write to you and say, hey, you must come here. You've got to write about these stories. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I've gone um, all over the place looking for, for random places. One of the one of the the other unexplained things I, I have in my uh, the book that came after uh, Ghostland, The Unidentified, is about the Great Kentucky Meat Shower, where I went to see the last bit of meat that supposedly fell out of the sky in 1876 over Olympia Springs, Kentucky, and it's, it's still in a jar in a university in, in Lexington, Kentucky. So, you know, yeah, there's always there's always <laughs> some weird new thing to go out and see. It certainly sounds like it. Colin, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. That's Colin Dickey. It's still weird, right? Meat shower? What is that? Colin is the author of Ghostland, an American history in haunted places and contributor for Atlas Obscura. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's have a little chat with our Scott Shantz this morning, because Scott and I have both been kind of following what is happening in the United States. And, and, and Scott, I feel like we've reached a point with these shootings in the United States that you, know, you, you wait for more details until you find out, like, okay, well, how bad is this one? Right, yeah, this, and this one, it looks like it's particularly Very bad, bad. Yeah. yeah, comparatively. And, I mean, they're all bad. Anytime someone loses a well, life, sure. and it's not to minimize anything else. But, yeah, like, we have become, to a certain degree, desensitized because uh, this is the 565th mass shooting in the United States in 2023. So we're in October. So that's, that's more crazy. than two a day in the United States. That is absolutely crazy. And at that point, like, I, I just, how do you not become desensitized to this? And in some cases, you, you know, and I get we're talking about some difficult stuff here. In some cases, the death count is higher. In some cases, the injury count is higher. Certain ones, unfortunately, garner more attention than than others in the media. And this is one of those ones that's going to garner a lot of attention. Um, the suspect is still on the loose. He's a former uh, military person. He uh, is a firearms training that's, professional. All of so, that just gets me on this one. It's an AR-15, once again, that yep, rifle. Yep. And this is somebody who is an expert in firearms. And has a history of mental health issues. He has been uh, in a mental health facility at points throughout his life. So uh, the fact that a person like that has access to firearms like this. So he went into a bowling alley in a restaurant and started shooting. And now they're asking everyone in that part of Maine to uh, shelter in place as they, the manhunt is on and they look for this guy. But uh, they've even put told kids to stay home from school. There's the neighborhoods right. where they have said, yeah, no, no school today because of this. Yeah. I, and I mean, I, I would keep my kid home oh, if, sure, if I was in course. that scenario. But this is what's inevitably going to happen. We're going to get all of the, you know, thoughts and prayers and all of the well, same people that, pattern we, now, right? that we always hear. Like Jimmy Kimmel will go on tonight and shed a tear and make a very, you know, powerful, impassioned speech asking, you know, people to stand up and do something and then nothing is going to happen because nothing ever does happen. And it's like, I, I that's very true. You know, it's well, so I sad. Feel, I know we talked about this this morning and for me, I, America had a tipping point when Sandy hook happened. Yes. And then once Sandy hook happened and they seemed to move on and nothing really changed, I thought 
well, nothing's ever going to change. Because if that wasn't the thing right. that made, like in Dunblane, Scotland, right, when that when that shooting happened at the school there, th- that overnight yes. changed the culture towards weapons in in that country. And yet that didn't change anything in the United States. Absolutely. You're, to- you're totally right that the Sandy Hook thing, you know, that it hit me so hard when it happened. And I think any parent would find oh, themselves in that, yeah. in that scenario. And you're right. Like, here we are. No, no changes have happened. And there, yes, these issues are complicated. There's a million things wrapped up to, in it, like mental health and uh, support systems in the United States. I'm not taking anything away from all of that. that that's all true. But like we can do one thing really easily. We, they can do one thing really easily and then address that. You can, you can just because you can't address one thing doesn't mean that you can't address the other thing. But Scott, look at, we're kind of preaching to the choir here, right? That's not going to be the conversation in the United States today. The conversation is going to be first finding this person because they have not found this person yet. And then I think as far as they're going to go with this discussion is how didn't this person get flagged? for having weapons. Given the considerations that you mentioned is that they'd been hospitalized, they'd had mental health issues. That is the person that you think would be flagged when it came to gun ownership. But that's going to be the only part that they talk about. So let me ask you this. One in five adults in the United States knows somebody who's a victim of gun violence. So one in five. That number seems ridiculously high to me. Does this change the way that you feel about traveling in the United States? Stories like this? No, not really. I mean, it could happen anywhere. Not here. It's definitely not as likely to happen here. here. No, no. When I say anywhere, I mean, it could happen in the United States. But uh, I don't travel. Like, I was there this summer, but I wouldn't say we travel extensively down there. So I don't know. Yeah. It's like going on an airplane. It's like, it's, it's, you you take that into consideration, I guess. I guess so. I met a couple at a at a climbing gym um, this past summer that were from Texas, and they moved up here because they they were just like, our child is in kindergarten, and we don't want her to have to go through these active shooter drills. And that was enough to, to make them I move. think that's different. Like, once you, you do that, like, we're just kind of coming and going. Yeah. We're just visiting and getting in, getting out, getting in, getting out. But if you are in that environment where, yes, you're practicing – gun drills the way we would practice imagine. earthquake drills as little kids. That's, I think that's a, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So they're saying as many as 22 people, uh, dead in this, in this scenario, uh, over 60 wounded. The man that's, is still on the loose. I know it's absolutely yeah. crazy. So there's going to be updates on this throughout the morning as, as we continue and, um, right. Thoughts and prayers. Uh, and you'll hear a lot of that today. Yeah. I'm sure yeah, Scott, yeah. you're absolutely right. Uh, it is a horrible situation on in Maine, and we will keep you posted on that. As Scott mentioned, police continuing to search for the person that they believe is responsible. They haven't found this person yet, uh, even though it's been about 12 hours now where this whole situation started to unfold. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simi, and a great song. Oh. Talking about ground control. We're actually going to be talking about flood control this morning. Excellent and, uh, segue. Excellent yeah, segue, yeah. Vaughn Palmer. Nicely yeah. done. <laughs> so, Simi, it's been two years since the Nooksack River in Washington State spilled over the border into the Fraser Valley and flooded everything in sight. A horrible, horrible thing. And in the wake of that, Uh, Governments on both sides of the border agreed uh, they need to get together and talk about this. 
talking about it for decades. But anyway, there's an urgency when that river floods. Uh, it floods into Canada because the land slopes downhill in the Fraser Valley. So they announced last week, Friday, BC government announced, hey, we've got an agreement signed by the Premier of British Columbia, signed by the Governor of Washington State, local leaders. We're going to finally deal with this thing. Simi, I'm indebted to my colleague, Gore Hoekstra at the Vancouver Sun. Story in the paper today, he's actually read the agreement and he says, hmm, you know, good intentions, but there are no timelines on when all of this is to take happen, or even what is going to happen, and even more important, no consensus or agreement on who's going to pay for this. It sounds like they're going to talk about it for another four years. Uh, wasn't the problem already that we had the flooding because we yeah. had been talking about it for so many years and nothing had been done? Yeah, uh, the fundamental challenge slash problem here is, as I say, the Nooksack floods, and when it floods, some of the flooding happens in Washington state, but an awful lot of the water spills across the border and into Canada. So any agreement, any how do we deal with this agreement, is going to have to contain the water, presumably with diking, on the American side to keep the river from flooding into Canada. But, you know, the water is still going to go somewhere. So is it going to increase flooding on the Washington state side? Uh, is it going to increase flooding downstream in Washington state? All of the benefit of any agreement is going to be in Canada and the additional pain is probably going to be in Washington state. Of course, there are environmental issues, local residency issues, all sorts of other things. It's very complicated. But the fundamental problem is, and, and this revolves around what's the plan and who pays for it, is Canada gets the benefit and additional pain happens in Washington state. And that is a very difficult issue to discuss in any cross-border agreement. Okay. Now, isn't this a, a bigger issue here, Vaughn? It's not just like the Nooksack River that we're talking about here, because isn't the Columbia River Treaty also up for discussion right now? It is, you know, and I've often thought the model on this, Canadians don't much like to hear this, but the model on this is the deal that was negotiated in the 1950s and signed in the 1960s on the Columbia River Treaty, because there the problem was the reverse. Huge runoff from the Columbia River into Washington State and horrible flooding, mostly in Washington State. There's a whole city in Oregon, uh, Vanport, that was flooded out in 1948 and never recovered, never came back. So, you know, the Americans and the Canadians talked about this and the treaty, the fundamentals of the treaty was the storage dams were built in Canada to hold back the water and spill it out slowly. And the Americans held, helped pay for the dam. If you applied that principle in the talks on the Nooksack, Canadians should pay for a lot of the flood control work in Washington state. That wouldn't end the complications uh, involving environmental concerns and dikes and where to put them and all that. But it strikes me that the principle that was applied on the Columbia River 
where the Americans paid for the flood control that was done in Canada, if you flip that around, you go, well, maybe Canada should be paying for the flood control on the Nooksack because we're going to get most of the benefit. Okay, that doesn't seem like it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, you know, and the Columbia River Treaty talks, which you mentioned, are ongoing. Uh, Canada gave notice that uh, it wants to reopen the treaty, and the Americans are talking about it as well. Uh, that treaty is very old, long, long time ago. A lot of environmental and indigenous issues that were just not even thought about back in the 1960s. So it does need renewal, but we get... Uh, the trade-off semi on the dams was that the Americans helped pay for them up front, and we built the dams. Uh, but we also got a share, Canada got a share, done through BC Hydro, of the additional electricity that was generated in the United States because the water was spilled out slowly. And the Americans say, look, we paid for the dams, and... You don't really need, there's not really a good case for you to get that uh, power anymore. Um, it generates a fair amount of revenue in a good year uh, for BC Hydro because we resell it in the United States. So they've, but they've also disagreed. There's a whole talk, Simi, about restoring the fish runs on the Columbia River. Uh, there is indigenous issues, transportation issues, environmental issues. The talks, I gather, are going fairly well, but I think that both sides are still a long way from agreement because the interests on both sides of the border are fundamentally different. And yet, you know, we're going to have this problem again and we're going to wonder what we've been talking about all this time. I agree on the Nooksack. Uh, I read Gord Hook's story in The Sun today, and I mean, I saw the press release in the government's last week, and everybody said, oh, this is a great step forward. I'm sure it is a great step forward, but it took them two years to get to this point, and they still haven't agreed what the plan is. They still haven't agreed when the plan is going to be implemented, and they still haven't agreed on who's going to pay for it. That, to me, is nice like try, nice start, but man, are we still a long way from settling that problem. All right, we are back with Vaughn Palmer now. We're talking about things that have been going on in question period this week, and things got a little testy in the back and forth. Like, normally there is that that goes on, but it feels like it got a little personal this week, Vaughn. Yeah, it got very personal. Now, a bit of context, the legislature is debating the government's legislation that's aimed at cracking down on short-term rentals. And government brought in that legislation to deal with a real problem out there, which is uh, a large number of people that have put large number of units into short-term rentals for Airbnb, and thus they're not available to the rental housing market. And the government says it wants to reduce that and has brought in legislation to do that. Uh, we also know, however, that when the government uh, sets off to do such ambitious things, there can be collateral damage. And we've already heard there are going to be problems with vacation rentals and the tourism market because visitors to British Columbia and Vancouver stay in Airbnb for good reasons. The hotels are expensive and there's a shortage of them. Downtown isn't as safe as it used to be. Airbnbs are nice. They're in good neighborhoods. And that's why people go there. There's a right. real demand for it. So the opposition is doing what the opposition does, right? Uh, wise governments know that debate on legislation can identify problems you didn't intend, and the opposition has introduced some amendments. The NDP response is, all you're trying to do is enrich your developer friends. You're trying to create loopholes that will 
prevent this problem from being solved. So, you know, in that context where the government refuses to take any of these concerns seriously, the opposition has been fighting back. Unfortunately, (laughs) they've gotten very personal. So meet David Eby, the Airbnb condo king. The opposition, BC United, dug out that David Eby sold the condo and made a $100,000 profit on the sale, which, you know, is not that much in this market. It happened a while ago. Yeah, it was like five years ago, I think, wasn't it? It yeah, Yeah. Yeah, and they point out that the realtor who listed the property for sale said, hey, this is great for the vacation market. Well, of course you did. It wasn't illegal to do that. And frankly, that would increase the value of the condo. EB pushed back the uh, NDP House leader, Ravi Kalan, pushed back and said, look, David EB never rented his place out when he owned it for Airbnb. And no one is really accountable for the legal uses that the person who buys your place puts them to, right? So it's, it's not a fair charge. And it's also, as you said, Simi, personalizing the thing and... You know, frankly, I think the government should listen to its critics about problems in this bill. And frankly, I think the opposition should make its points without demonizing the other side of the house as well. I don't know, Vaughn. That sounds too reasonable. (laughs) Okay. So we got the pushback, right? (laughs) Yes. So so episode two of this ridiculous drama, uh, the New Democrats, uh, we get up in the House yesterday during question period and the Liberals... uh, party that used to be known as that, BC United, come in and they start trying to ask questions to the condo king. And the speaker, who does try hard to maintain decorum, says, look, let's not have that name calling in there. We're not going to allow that, right? Yeah. Never mind what used to happen in the past and all the name calling in the past. We're not going to do that. Okay, fair enough. And the New Democrats do a pushback by press release too. So meet Million Dollar Mike. Uh, The government has a research department as well, and they have dirt on the other side. And their government pointed out by press release yesterday that BC United MLA Mike DeYoung from the Fraser Valley sold uh, seven properties for a million dollars or a million dollar gain uh, a while back. So, you know, if you're going to get into this personalizing stuff, Let's remember the other side can do the same thing. Why don't both sides just shut up and debate the merits of the yes, legislation? But there you go, Simi. I'm talking about the personal stuff. So, you know, great grist for the mill, but I don't think it added any enlightenment to the potential problems down the road with the government's short-term rental legislation. Well, this all seems like a distraction, right? Like that, yeah. that's, that, that is the problem here, because you're right. There are legitimate issues that need to be raised, particularly on the tourism side of things, uh, and this doesn't accomplish any of that. Yeah, and you know, when the government won't listen to reasonable objections to its legislation, and when it says, now nah, you're only just trying to profit the developers, um, what's going to happen is the government has the votes, the legislation will pass, And I predict that a year from now or so, we'll be reporting on the problems with the legislation, the squawking from the tourism industry, that people are not coming and staying here because they can't find an Airbnb anymore. Yes, I feel like we will be. Okay, so we'll just have to wait for that one. And now, Vaughn, tomorrow I'm going to be in Victoria. We're going to actually sit together and do this segment, right? 
Yeah, we're going to be in the haunted bunker in the basement that is normally occupied by Mike uh, Mike Smith, Smith and various <laughs> ghosts in the legislature building. Is it? Uh, down near the dungeon down there. And, uh, Don't tell me you know, that. We might hear the ghost of Amorta Cosmos dragging his chains <laughs> through the attic. In the Lots to talk about. That. Get your hand on the technology, Simi. You're not going to get any help from me on how to make that ridiculous uh, apparatus in that room work. <laughs> it's okay. Mike's going to show up and help me with that good. early. Like, good man, five o'clock in the morning, he's going to help me do that. Great. So. Good for him. Haunted. I did, you didn't tell me that. Maybe I should have taken the day off. Uh, Vaughn, Thank you. I look forward to seeing you in person. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mornings with Simi. You've probably seen the headlines this week, this story out of the United States where a pilot who wasn't on duty but was flying on this Alaska Airlines flight has now been charged with something like 83 count, 83 counts of attempted murder. He had a bit of a, I guess, a mental breakdown. He tried to turn off the engines and open the doors of the airplane while the plane was in mid-flight. That is very scary stuff. And afterwards, you know, when talking to authorities, he admitted to police that he had been struggling with depression over the last six months, had had recently lost a friend. He hadn't slept for more than 40 hours and says he thought he was dreaming. So he thought that shutting down the engines of the plane would wake him up. This was somebody who was a pilot on his way to continue working and flying. And so then obviously the question becomes how? What is the assessment for pilots here? How do we how do we check to make sure they're okay to fly? So we thought let's dive into that a little bit. Dr. Robert Bohr is with us now, a clinical team lead and subject matter expert at the Center for Aviation Psychology. Dr. Bohr, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. Dr. Bohr, what are the rules around this uh, if, for determining whether or not a pilot can and should fly? How often do we check this? Really good question. Throughout the world, pilots, commercial airline pilots, are assessed regularly and at least once a year for their mental health, physical health, and obviously their flying skills. And this is quite a thorough and in-deep assessment. Uh, in, uh, in assessment, we can add to that that if you think about it, each time a pilot flies, they are seated, usually, it's a large commercial flight, beside another pilot who is observing them, working with them to ensure um, you know, safe passage. And so you could regard this as a form of a daily check. And of course, pilots are also checked by uh, check pilots as well. So assessments are thorough and frequent. Um, There are also um, other ways in which we assess pilots, which would be in the simulator um, and also um, their own personal GP, family doctor is also likely to have some involvement if there are mental health issues. Pilots, we should remember, are excluded. Well, they would not be able to be trained, but they'd be excluded from flying if they have pre-existing serious and lasting mental health problems anyway. So the occurrence of this last week is actually incredibly rare when we look at the number of flights globally uh, that operate completely safely. Fatigue may be an issue for pilots, but this sort of fatigue and presentation of problem, extremely rare. Okay, so should this have been caught though, or do you think this case was an outlier? It's a good question as well. Um, it, uh, it, It only would have been caught 
if the other pilots were aware of this individual's pilot's diminishing capabilities. So had they been closely together, let's say in the preceding 36 hours, the crew were in a hotel together, it probably would have been noticeable that somebody was very distracted, possibly tired, perhaps not making clear sense and so on. Um, But air crews don't always operate this way. They can sometimes arrive at the gate and that will be their first meeting uh, with the, you know, the fellow crew members that they're going to be with. And so therefore unusual behaviours perhaps wouldn't be present. The fact, look, we don't know all the facts here, but, you know, the fact that he was a third pilot, therefore not really an operating pilot, um, raises questions about what his role was. Was he just positioning going from you know one airport to another in order to fly an aircraft uh was he checking on the other two we're not sure of that and no doubt the faa the u.s uh, um authorities will uh, will soon understand that um the fact that in court issues around fatigue were raised this is mm-hmm. quite common amongst pilots um but fatigue is not necessarily going to be career limiting Um, You know, lots of uh, people experience fatigue, but then can catch up their sleep. Or if they want to, they can report unwell. They don't have to actually report for duty. That's my question then, Dr. Bohr. Like, are pilots supposed to have a heightened sense of their obligation here because of how many people's lives are kind of in their hands? So if he hadn't slept for 40 hours or whatever the case was, should they not? Are they not obligated to have that sense of recognition to say, "Mm, I'm not at my best right now. I probably shouldn't be flying. Totally, that's the case for me. Um, We rely on pilots to monitor their own physical and mental health. We're not asking them, you know, to be specialists in this area. But, for example, if they have earache, if they have some visual disturbance, uh, or in this case, sleep difficulties, they should self-monitor and then obviously not report for duty. And no one is going to require a pilot to do something that is going to break the bounds of, of safety. I think this raises the question in this particular case, what was going on with this individual? And this this will be uh, found out, you know, in in a very short space of time. You know, were there recreational drugs involved? Again, extremely rare amongst airline pilots. Um, Was this the sort of first presentation of a mental health breakdown, Um, which can happen, obviously, to anyone in the general population? But interesting and surprising that there were no um, kind of early warning Uh, signs of this earlier on because I'm sure the other two pilots if they'd picked that up would not have wanted him to fly and someone with a sleep disorder or problems then not sleeping for 48 hours continuously and then reporting for work to me takes us to the realm of either a severe mental health problem where the individual lacks insight And that's the thing that we're always most concerned about, because a pilot with any problem but has insight and agency, so they can therefore, you know, report themselves unwell, unfit and so on, is fine. That happens on a daily basis. Not having insight is the thing that we're concerned about. Whether his real intention, you know, was to murder people, which was obviously the charge leveled in court, um, or just a lack or, or breakdown of, of capacity will be things that we will understand in the next, probably in the next few days. Right, but thank you so much for the perspective on this. We appreciate that. Thanks, Amy.
That's Dr. Robert Bohr. Uh, he is a clinical team lead subject matter expert at the Center for Aviation Psychology, talking about the, the lengths to which pilots are, are tested and go to and are observed to make sure they're fit to fly because of all the headlines in this case this week about this one man now facing multiple charges, something like 83 counts of attempted murder. He was having a breakdown. He was an off-duty pilot on his way to be on duty, though, third pilot on a plane. Uh, he was just in the jump seat, uh, tried to shut the plane's engines down mid Light, tried to open the doors, and he says that he thought he was dreaming. He thought that shutting down the engines would wake him up. But can you imagine how terrifying that must have been for the other pilots, for the crew, for the people on board that plane, too? So, yes, pilots are supposed to monitor themselves. Uh, but how successful is that? This is Mornings with Simi. We're talking about loneliness this morning with Scott Chance. And Scott, we've talked about a lot of different ways to cure loneliness. Obviously, you know, social interaction, mm-hmm. getting to know people, putting yourself out there, which is really hard for people to do. Don't tell me that artificial intelligence has the answer, please. Okay, well, I won't tell you that. Oh, I will let Amir Shabani tell you that. <laughs> he is a machine learning and artificial intelligence expert from the University of, Fra- of the Fraser Valley, and they are working hard on this, on this idea of teaching EQ, you know, like your emotional quotient as opposed to your intelligence quotient, teaching that to, to AI and thinking about all of the wonderful things that they can do um, with that. And, and one of the things that they're, that they're very serious about is using AI to combat and cure loneliness. And sort of like you, Simi, I was a little bit like, oh, is this, a, is this a good idea? Is this real? Is this even possible? Because it feels like, my initial thought was like, the AI will just be mimicking what emotion is. It can't possibly actually have emotions of its own. And I asked Amir that. I said, is this like, you actually believe that it's possible to teach an AI to have emotions? Absolutely. I think if you want to put it in perspective, think about how far we got in terms of technology advancement. Um, I guess we have digitization, computing, and then artificial intelligence. Uh, Just think about that now you're going to add other type of intelligence to a machine. In our case, for example, we are working on affective computing, emotional AI. Um, In a a simple word, um, we are adding... EQ or emotional intelligence to machine and think about um, the type of interactions a machine or a robot could have with a human when it's been equipped with um, emotional intelligence. It could um, respond empathetically, it could sympathize with you, so you would love to interact with a machine like that, that is not just a machine but brings the conversation, brings the interaction to the next level and understands your emotion, reacts accordingly, and why not? Helping you to regulate your emotion. So if you are thinking of uh, scenarios that people are lonely, um, I think machine uh, could have an important role to play. That's very interesting. How do you think that people would react to the idea of machines taking this taking this role because for so long we've been conditioned to when I'm lonely I seek out connection from another person and now we're talking about potentially having that with a machine what do you think the human reaction will be to that one thing I think it's worth um, mentioning at this point is that the whole intention of um, adding EQ to robots and machines not to replace that human connection as a matter of fact I think we are we all have a 
busy lifestyle and we, we may not have enough time to interact and call our loved ones and, you know, um, understand what they are doing, those sort of things. Sometimes social media even helps um, me to, to get to know what's the latest status of my close friends. So why not? Why not having machine um, essentially living with you, learning your preferences and think about the digital pet event. We all, some of us have pets and, you know, a great companion. So why not having a digital pet that is a great companion? I think if we <clears throat> design properly and have, you know, the idea of human-centered AI or human-in-the-loop machine learning, when we are designing systems like that, um, I think they would be complementary to existing relationship that we have. And even they could initiate those type of, um, I guess, um, deeper connections. Just imagine that, you know, the robot knows how often you're interacting with your loved ones and could initiate, you know, send a text message to your loved ones if you're a senior living by yourself. Um, uh, hey, over the last couple of days, you didn't have a chance to talk to your mom or dad. How about, you know, a few minutes? What time works for you? And I could arrange that call. And, you know, there is an interface in between and, you know, could, could make a better connections. What would this actually look like? Is it something that would be part of our, our phone, part of our computer? Would we have like a humanoid robot? Are all of these kind of options? What, what does the future of this actually look like? It doesn't have to be a physical uh, hardware like a robot. It could be the chatbot that we are interacting, the Siri, Alexa, all of those could be um, essentially such a companion robot. And um, it could be on your phone, essentially you're taking with you it's mobile it could live with you like a digital pet um, and in different forms what other uh, potential applications are there to giving EQ and like learning EQ to an, to an AI giving it that ability I, I think we have other type of intelligence that haven't been tried um, and haven't been deployed in the area of machine or robots and now we are at that edge that we are trying to add the other types of uh, intelligence to, to the machine and everyone gets excited about. Yeah, I, I'm excited about. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, one of the places my brain went was mental health things. You know, if someone is having yeah. a, like a dark moment or a couple is having an argument and they, you know, sometimes it takes a long time to get a hold of a therapist or a, a professional yeah. who can help you through that. Perhaps AI will, or, you know, an emotional AI will be able to help, you know, guide somebody through that. But are there, are there yeah. risks? Are there concerns that you're anticipating here? Um, in, in that go along with some of the positives? Uh, absolutely. There is always concern when we are interacting with a digital device, um, you know, like everyone else. Um, when you are on your cell phone, you know, too much, the addiction is a concern. The privacy is a concern. The security is a concern. There is always concern when you move towards digital transformation. Um, so, yes, absolutely, there is concern, and, and I think it's a valid concern. What reminds us as a technology developer is that we need to interact with other scientists in social and health science, even law um, psychologists when we are working on in topics like affective computing, so that we are not developing something that is, you know, um, brings, um, it, it's going to have a, negative byproducts. Um, but uh, I totally agree. And there are concerns. 
but it could be addressed when we are designing systems like that by simply having human in the loop, expert in the loop, uh, and addressing those concerns. That's Amir Shabani. He's a machine learning and AI expert at the University of the Fraser Valley. Seems straightforward enough to me, Simi. No, Scott, bro- no I, risk whatsoever. <laughs> I don't want the robot to know how often I'm texting my loved ones. I don't need judgment from a chatbot. It, al- it already knows. No, it doesn't. Well, Stop freaking me out like that. <laughs> Scott, more things pe- to think people about. People know. <laughs> Thanks for that, Scott. Thanks You're for welcome. nothing, Scott Shantz. <laughs> This is Mornings with Simi. When it comes to dealing with homeless encampments, cities and municipalities everywhere have a tendency to turn to the courts, right? Find out what they're legally allowed to do and what they can't do. Well, there is a new report out just this morning, actually, where they have done the first comprehensive study of these kinds of court decisions here in B.C., we wanted to find out what they found, actually. So Stephen Wood is with us, the Canada Research Chair in Law, Society and Sustainability and Professor at UBC's Allard School of Law. Stephen, thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. First off, what did you look at here? What did you examine? Well, everybody knows that homeless encampments on a government-owned land are the one of the most visible um, symptoms of the intersecting crises of housing, homelessness, poverty, toxic drugs, mental health, and colonialism. And we also know that often the governments end up turning to the courts for orders evicting or clearing those encampments from public land. Um, and usually they get those orders. We know that um, most of the time, Uh, the courts are eager to oblige and uh, issue these orders evicting uh, encampments, uh, which, you know, are for understandable reasons. Uh, But one of the problems is that this takes the pressure off uh, governments at all levels, from municipal right up to the federal government, to sit down with the real experts in this area, people experiencing homelessness themselves, to work towards lasting solutions to these crises. So what we didn't know, though, is exactly how eager the courts are to oblige when they're asked for orders evicting these encampments. And that led to the research. Uh, We looked at every single court decision in B.C. this century, so since 2000, where governments have asked uh, the courts for an injunction Uh, against a homeless encampment on uh, government-owned land. And the results really shocked us because it was even uh, sort of more lopsided than we expected. What do you mean lopsided? In what way? Well, in the, so in all of the cases that have been decided uh, in this century, the courts have granted injunctions against residents of homeless encampments in 75% of the cases overall. you got to understand, injunctions are supposed to be extraordinary and drastic remedies that are issued when there's really no alternative. And actually, the 75%, even though that's already a high number, it was even higher if you look at a particular type of injunction known as an interlocutory or preliminary injunction. That's where a uh, complainant goes to the court asking for an injunction before they've even proved their case, basically to get the remedy while they're waiting for the case to go forward. 
And the governments routinely do that in the case of homeless encampments. And when they do that, they actually have an 85% success rate. So in 85% of the times that governments go to courts or injunctions usually to evict the encampments, uh, before they've even had to prove their case, marshal all their evidence and arguments and so on, they win in 85% of the time. Uh, and that is, if you compare a few years ago in 2019, there was a report came out about injunctions against First Nations uh, involved in disputes over resource extraction on Indigenous territories. And that report found that those uh, had a 75% success rate. When you're dealing with uh, homeless encampment residents, some of the most vulnerable and marginalized members of society, um, to see that the rate of uh, these preliminary injunctions against them is even higher than that is cause for concern. You know, that report back in 2019 raised a public outcry from coast to coast to coast about how lopsided that was. And this is at least as lopsided if more. Right. Okay. So, but why do you think that is though? Like if that's, if that was unusual and if it looked unusual when the court started doing this, what was the precedent there? So why did that happen? Well, I mean, it's hard to say why it happened because we can't get inside the heads of the judges that are deciding these cases. But what you can see, if you look at these decisions is that almost systematically, the courts have uh, weighed in on, in favor of the government complainants in terms of their presentation of the evidence uh, and have really not weighed the evidence um, brought forward by the encampment residents and their lawyers when they have lawyers uh, in the same way. Evidence, for example, that the housing that the government says is available is really not practically accessible to many of the people who find themselves sheltering outdoors for a variety of reasons. Okay. Evidence that the encampments themselves provide benefits of safety and stability for encampment residents that are actually more beneficial to them than the alternative of either living rough on the streets or in many cases even being in shelters or single uh, room occupancy hotels and there's various other things too that the where the the courts have just um weighed the evidence uh, in a what i consider a lopsided way Okay, so what are the consequences of this then, Stepan? When if if the courts do this time and time again, and this is a relatively recent phenomenon, then does that set the tone for what decisions will be in the future? Well, it may or it may not, but um, I would say there's two big consequences. One is just the immediate consequence for the people who are affected. Um, these injunctions almost invariably evict encampments. And you really have to understand what that means is people are being removed from their homes. They often lose many or most of their belongings in the process, and they are dispersed to the streets and alleys and corners and uh, um, you know parklands of towns and cities around the province. Uh, so that's, one, that's a very uh, immediate impact. The second impact is that it just 
literally kicks the problem down the road um, and uh, temporarily takes the pressure off all levels of government to uh, really look for lasting solutions. But and actually, there's a third thing, which is that um, I'm not sure that this is necessarily a pattern that will continue to the future, because actually, just in the last couple of years, the courts have started to show signs of a different approach, recognizing really the futility of just repeatedly issuing these injunctions. And um, in a recent decision here in Vancouver uh, related to the encampment at Crab Park, which uh, many people will be familiar with, Mm -hmm. a judge said, uh, I'm not going to issue the injunction to uh, clear this encampment because it's just going to continue this whack-a-mole exercise. Uh, It will appear somewhere else. And in fact, wherever else it appears might be an even less appropriate place than Crab Park is, given its relative separation from, you know, uh, dense residential areas. Um, And also that, uh, you know, the courts have begun to recognize that um, these uh, homeless encampments are also an issue of colonialism and reconciliation because indigenous people are disproportionately represented Mm -hmm. in the precariously held population and in homeless encampments uh, and uh, evicting them just sort of continues these cycles of what they experience as sort of colonial violence and dispossession. Seven, thank you for explaining that to us this morning. Well, thanks for having me. That's Stephen Wood, Canada Research Chair in Law, Society and Sustainability, professor at UBC's Allard School of Law. They did a comprehensive study, the first of its kind, to look at court decisions involving homeless encampments in B.C. and about which way those decisions went. They were surprised by their findings about how courts would often, um, you know, move along those homeless encampments where cities and towns and municipalities were often granted the orders that they were looking for. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been almost exactly three weeks now since Hamas attacked Israel and fighting broke out in that region. Thousands of people have been killed and the situation remains incredibly tense. Israel now says it has struck more than 7,000 targets in Gaza as a result of those initial attacks and humanitarian convoys struggle to get into Gaza. Meanwhile, in cities like Tel Aviv, life struggles to go on there. We're going to check back in now with Leah Herman. Leah's a Canadian who is living in Tel Aviv. We, we spoke to her a couple of weeks ago. We thought we would check in and see how she's doing. Leah, thanks for being back with us. My pleasure. How are things going today versus when we last talked to you a couple of weeks ago? So in Tel Aviv, I feel it's definitely calmed down a little bit um, as opposed to a couple rockets a day. It's more like one every other day. Um, we literally just had one 30 minutes ago. Um, of course, there was no contact. In the rest of the country, of course, they're still having them daily, hourly. But in Tel Aviv, I definitely have noticed quite a change. It's a little bit calmer. You know, I've noticed in, even the way you talk about it, though, has changed because that was all new to you a couple of weeks ago. And now yes. you seem like you've gotten used to it. Um, unfortunately, yes. Before, I think the sound of a siren really, really rattled me. And um, it was it was so nerve wracking every day, you know, even taking a shower would stress me out because what if I missed a siren? What if I missed a notification? But at this point, um, I kind of feel used to it. Yes, the siren does, you know, give me anxiety, but the protocol is more common to me now. So, And what is the protocol? So what happens when you hear that siren? 
Um, generally, suit, no matter what you're doing, you just drop what you're doing and head to the staircase or into the shelter. So for my house, there is no shelter. So we all gather in the stairwell. You're recommended to wait 10 minutes after the siren does stop, just in case there is any aftermath or any like shrapnel, let's say, that comes down from the sky or another rocket sent. And then you basically just go back upstairs and continue with your day as you did. <laughs> I know. It, and it does sound like really remarkable when you describe it that way. Like, are you surprised by how you've become almost like accustomed to this? Um, yeah, definitely. Like, especially being from Canada, where this is so, so abnormal and not anything we would ever experience being here. Um, I didn't think I'd get used to something like this, but I mean, three weeks all the time, 24 hours a day, eventually it's just something that becomes a part of your day. And um, I'm sure when it's over, um, the sounds that similar to a siren will still kind of rattle me or stress me out. But, um, you know, hopefully something will move on from soon. Right. And so what about regular everyday things then in Tel Aviv, Leah? How, how does that work? Like, does life, does it go on? Are businesses open? Like, what's it like out on the street? So the start of, the, sorry, the end of this week, I've noticed a lot more things have been opening. Unfortunately, people's lives do have to go on. So I am back in my office. It is optional, of course, but I do feel like it's better than sitting at home and being alone and being stressed out. We're kind of all together. There is a shelter there. Um, all buildings are open, but of course, when there's sirens, everyone kind of knows where to go and everyone is quite aware. Right. Okay. And so is there that same kind of feeling from other people, do you think about how, well, this is just something you get used to? Um, so I guess for the people that are still here, I do have a few friends who have left. Like a friend of mine was at the Nova Music Festival where there was the massacre and he tried to stay, but he was just so uncomfortable being here and he was just anxious all the time. So he's left, but I feel like everyone who's here is is now kind of used to the feeling and, um, you know, has gotten used to it, I guess. Yeah. How do you feel about your decision to stay? Like a few weeks ago, you thought, no, no, this is where I live and I'm not going to give up on this. How do you feel about that now? Um, I still feel the same. And I am really proud to say that a lot of my friends also feel the same way. Um, we all kind of feel a connection to the people in this land here and um, none of us really want to go. Um, people who are leaving, I, I, I know, are people who either need to leave because either they have sick family back home and they don't know if they can get another opportunity to leave because we don't know what's going to happen with the airport. Like flights can be stopped completely. But at this time, um, everyone's mostly willing to stay. And, and what about family, friends that you have back in Canada? What are they saying to you? Um, my parents wish I came home. That's that's for sure. You know, they do ask every day, are you sure you don't want to come home? Um, and I do have friends asking me and people do want to also know why, like, why would you stay when you can leave? But, you know, after I explain everything to them and, um, they understand that like, this is my home. And so this is where I want to stay. All right. Well, so people who didn't hear you perhaps a couple of weeks ago, why do you stay? Um, I've chosen to stay one because like my life is here, my friends, my family, well, friends who have become family, my life, my job. And I feel like Israeli people don't get the opportunity to just get up and leave and catch a flight because their country's sending flights for them home. So I don't think it's it's fair of me to come here and live my, my life. And I really enjoyed the last six years living here. And then now the times are bad, I just run away. So. And so how closely are you following kind of what's happening politically on this? Like how engaged would you say Israelis are uh, in terms of like kind of the way this is seen around the world? Um, I feel like I spend a lot of time on social media because, I mean, sitting at home a lot, I'm on my phone, and I do feel like Israel and Israelis have had to spend a lot of time defending themselves, which, of course, is everyone is entitled to their opinion, so I don't want to offend anyone by what I'm saying, but more than we're seeing a lot of people saying, like, 
that what happened with Hamas is not true and Israel is creating propaganda to like show their side. And it, it is quite hurtful when you're these people are millions of miles away from the actual situation and it's creating a false narrative on social media. And what would you like to say to people then? What, what do you want people to keep in mind? Um, I just want people to keep in mind that before they post something to kind of historically check or understand the words that they're using in regards to the situation, because as we know, someone can post, anyone can post whatever they want. Everyone has that right. But other people see it and they automatically believe it and then they share it. And so when false, this is how false information is spread. And so I think there's a lot of words like genocide, ethnic cleansing, occupation that are being used incorrectly and creating a real, real sense of hate on social media. And that must be hard for you to take. It must be hard for anybody to take in that in that region right now. Yeah, exactly. I feel like all of my friends are doing is posting on social media just to defend, defend themselves, not to defend any actions by any country or anything like that, but just more to say, like, please understand what you're talking about and what you're saying, because you're creating a sense of anti-Semitism. And it's obviously clearly seen now it's happening all over the world. It's not just in Israel anymore. There's there's a war kind of everywhere between like different sides. So do you feel that? Have you have you felt that kind of attitude shift? Um, I definitely have felt the attitude shift. I have had a lot of people on my Instagram either like message me nasty things or say like, I'm going to unfollow you because of what you're posting. And so I kind of feel like I have to be really careful and make sure everything I post is historically and politically and accurately correct. Because I don't, I don't want to be part of that narrative either where I'm um, engaging in uh, false information. So one more thing for you to worry about and stress out about, Leah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, listen, take care and we appreciate you checking in with us, okay? Thank you so much. Have an awesome day. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of us are attracted to scary experiences, aren't we? Haunted houses, watching scary movies, reading scary stories. I mean, it's weird, but some people just like to be kind of scared. I mean, why? Doesn't it seem strange that we would like the idea of Almost like being threatened in that way, you would think, right? But apparently it's evolutionary, and we're going to find out how. Dr. Athena Actipus is with us now, an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University and founder of Zombified Media. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Actipus, what is wrong with us? Why do we like being scared? (laughs) Well, first of all, not everybody loves being scared. But a lot of people do enjoy that thrill, enjoy the chance to kind of push out of their comfort zones and kind of explore something that is um, is new for them. So actually, I see it as part of kind of like a broader interest in um, exploring, pushing our own boundaries, learning about our environment. And yeah, like you were saying, there's a, a good evolutionary reason behind it all. Is there? Why? What is it? Well, so... We have to sort of think about us, you know, our behaviors, our desires, our motivations in two different ways. So one is you can think about like in the moment, what is it that's motivating you? Right. And it could be like with horror, it could be like, oh, that's fun or that's interesting or I'm kind of just curious about it. Um, But then we also have to think, you know, evolutionarily, why is it fun, at least for some people, right, to do that? And the fact is that engaging in scary play, doing things like, you know, watching scary movies, going to haunted houses, those are actually really sort of safe ways of learning about things that could potentially be threatening. 
whether it's, you know, dangerous environments or people who might be dangerous or um, animals that might be dangerous, right? Dressing up and, and sort of going through this sort of play. Um, it's, uh, it's actually analogous to something that we huh. see in the animal world called predator inspection. So you're saying it's almost like we're playing, like we're practicing for what we would do in real life. And in real life, hopefully we would be smarter than what happens here. Yeah, well, and in real life, if we have some experience already with potential threats, then we um, essentially have gotten to learn about those potential threats in a more safe way. So I can give like an example from the animal world. Lots of animals will, in certain circumstances, actually approach their predators. So a gazelle might actually approach a lion to see what the lion's behavior is like. And if the lion has like recently eaten, they might be kind of lounging around. They might not be likely to kind of jump up and chase the gazelle. And if the gazelle can learn this, can learn when the lion is a threat and when it's not, then it can forage more and, you know, not sort Mm -hmm. of lose opportunities to gain nutrients if there's a lion nearby, right? It's like it learns how to operate um, more safely even in the presence of threats. Um, And... Yeah, is ahead. it a way of testing ourselves, too, so that we can see what we are capable of? Yeah. So it has all of these different potential functions. And in fact, in different people, um, it seems like they're sort of different underlying reasons. So for some people, <clears throat> they really just like the, the thrill of it. Um, and they just like they really enjoy that kind of adrenaline rush. And um, for other people, they like that um, sense of kind of learning about themselves and learning how to how to keep their um, keep themselves from kind of um, getting like too overreactive or anxious when there are threatening things around, right? Because if you sort of practice, then you you learn how to like regulate yourself and manage yourself better when you're around scary things, and that can be really important for you, you know, if you are able to actually keep your mind on a little straighter when there's something around that might stress you out. Hmm. Is this why we love Halloween so much then? You know, it probably is part of it. Uh, Halloween is sort of like this time where everybody is sort of collectively going in on doing scary things, being scary, exploring scary stories and um, sharing in that together. And that collective experience is also something that, you know, can be really special because it puts our shared attention on potential threats, right? And that that can be really fun for us as humans to, to do that together, not just as individuals. So is this something that we have always done, Dr. Octopus? Have we, have we always, like back in history, has there been an embrace of kind of scary situations or scary stories? So, uh, you know, both uh, if you look historically at the written record and also if you look in small scale societies, you see lots and lots of stories that are actually about things that are threatening, whether it's, you know, potentially threatening individuals or um, apocalyptic scenarios in the world, natural disasters, um, stories that get passed along often have sort of like information embedded in them that helps people learn about things that, you know, may have happened in the past that are threatening. Um, uh, Of course, often they get embellished and, you know, you add metaphysical elements onto a story that, you know, might have originally uh, not had any of that because, you know, those, those uh, make the stories more fun and compelling for people. But even if they're not, you know, true stories, that doesn't mean you can't learn from them, right? Because you can 
learn about sort of general principles. And also you can tell stories about things that haven't yet happened, but could happen in the future. So then you can kind of simulate them in your head and simulate them even with others um, if you're doing collective storytelling or, you know, immersive storytelling. You know what? That's so true, though, right? When you think about when we watch a scary movie, we like to mock the people and what they do in the scary movie because we think we would never do that. Yeah, right? It's like, no, don't go in the basement. Don't, yeah. And then like... <laughs> <laughs> and yet they go in the basement. So like, right. it's like we're doing it to make ourselves feel better. Right. But, but also then you could be like, oh, okay, that's what happens when you go in the basement. I guess I don't need to try that myself if I'm ever in a situation like this. So oh, so we're learning. We're like, well, I would never go in the basement and I would never hide in that spot if there was a serial killer on the loose in my house. <laughs> exactly. Wow. This is a fascinating area of study. So it really does kind of delve deep into human psychology, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, there are things that are actually really important to us as humans, you know, in terms of our daily existence, right? We love stories. We love watching movies, um, scary video games, all these things. They're, they're part of our daily lives. They're things that we kind of keep close. And I think it's really cool that we're kind of at a point with research in psychology and in, you know, gaming and storytelling and all of this, where things are kind of coming together and people are realizing, oh, the stuff that, you know, people are doing as, you know, a distraction from their daily lives. Well, actually, maybe there's something deeper going on in terms of our drives to learn from stories, our drives to connect to others um, with stories, and maybe better anticipate uh, uncertain futures together through mm. stories. I like that. That's what I'm going to tell myself. Do you watch scary movies? I, I do. Um, I uh, <laughs> took me a while to realize that they're actually like super fun. I always was just like, oh, I'm going to just be scared. But a lot of scary movies have like so much like comedy and like, you know, you get that like relief all the time because something ridiculous is happening. And uh, you, become, I think, uh, you become kind of yeah. a nerd to them, don't you? Because like I was terrified of them when I was younger, but then the older I got, they got easier and easier to watch. So maybe we do also, it's our way of actually getting used to scary situations too. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, developing a little bit more of that, like sense of humor when things are going wrong. I think uh, probably watching horror helps for that. <laughs> okay, so these are educational. That's what we can tell ourselves. <laughs> we can tell ourselves that, yeah. <laughs> All right, that's what I'm going to tell myself. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Athena Ancapis, who's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Arizona State University and the founder of Zombified Media, talking about why we embrace these scary things. It's, it's evolutionary. I get that, right? It's almost like we're practicing or testing ourselves, making sure that we wouldn't put ourselves in those situations that might be a threat to us. We are actually learning how not to do that. See, now that makes perfect sense to me. And of course, we're going to talk about scary stuff in the days leading up to Halloween. I know people probably have a lot of plans this weekend to go out uh, to someplace scary, maybe go to a party, something like that. And uh, we'll be talking more about it, of course, in the days ahead. And yeah, scary movies, we'll definitely talk about those too. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.